Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members, including active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their families. You'll receive a lifetime of membership benefits with Navy Federal. And you can easily access accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Visit NavyFederal.org watch. For more information, call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome yes. to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio after a brief stint in the Vacaville Prison Mental Hospital, it's Jason Concepcion! Yeah, the thing you gotta understand, man, is like, <laughs> you're out there, but we're in here and you've got your reality, but what about this one? <laughs> I don't, I don't go by your rules anymore, Chris. Jason is referring to something that happens midstream in Mindhunter Season yeah. 2, and that's what we are talking about today. Jason and I are going to be breaking down the first five episodes of Mindhunter Season 2. It's a double Jason episode, so first half of the show, Jason and I are going to be talking about Mindhunter Season 2, the first five episodes, mm-hmm. and then in the second half, we'll have the audio for Number One Boys, Episode 2, our succession after show, breaking down the episode of The Vaulter. All right, Jason, let's just get right into Mindhunter. Yeah. Right? My most anticipated show of the year. Mm. Uh, They took David Fincher. They added Andrew Dominic and Carl Franklin. They are taking on a wider range of, I think, like, both American underworld history in this this season. And yet, the first episode, I feel like, I think we might be seeing a lot more episodes like this in other Netflix shows where it's like, hey, I know we haven't been on in two years. Here's what happens on this show. And— that was really a, an effective way of doing it. They give you that early shock of a BTK killer doing some stuff by himself in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, and then, boom, into really an extended exposition about how we got here, where we are. Yeah, structurally, they're still teasing the BTK mm-hmm. as a point of view character in the beginning and sometimes at the end of episodes. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of showing... The side of these killers that we never see when Tench and Holden and Wendy talk to them in their interrogations, yeah. which is this sort of uh, this these private moments of contemplation about what he is and what he's becoming and what he wants to be. And throughout the season, we get these ideas that he is essentially grappling with the emergence of this other persona for himself. You know, this is such the show. Compartmentalization is a real theme. Huge. Huge. Huge theme in in this series, uh, particularly season two, and we're seeing Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, grappling with how to keep those walls up, how yeah. to how to be a seemingly functioning member of society with a wife, with a job, goes to the library, does all these normal things, while he's got this incredible darkness inside of him. Yeah. It's just struggling to get it's out. It's chilling because it's also like what, what Fincher's yeah. sort of chronicling here is the things in between the lines in a yeah. newspaper story that you would read in the 80s or even even today where you're just like, oh, this seems just horrific. What? Yeah. I, who can imagine? And then you kind of, as a reader, as a person in the world, move past that and you go off and do your own life. But he's sort of mired in the little details of these people's lives that build up to that story being yeah. written. And this idea that this guy is like, um, you know, has these sexual proclivities that he's hiding and he's, you know, his wife's not supposed to be home in the first right. episode when he's in, in the bathroom doing some stuff with a mask <laughs> on. And then 
later on when he's burying that box in the yeah. backyard and you're just like, that box yeah. is not buried. No, you you not were not sense. burying what you were doing. Your wife's book on <laughs> right. sexual deviancy did not work. So yeah, the BTK stuff is a really nice thematic template. It's a really nice tone setter. Let's talk a little bit. I don't know if you want to go through episode by episode. Obviously, spoiler-wise, we're going to be talking about everything right. that happens through the first five episodes. And I will say, even if you just are riding a little, riding on the edge with us here, stuff happens in four and five that is going to be a spoiler. So it, 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 I don't want to spoil things for you in regards to the main characters. It goes up a level four or five. Four it and does five, jump the up series a level. goes up a level. So first episode, like we said, is largely a recap of where the first season ended. It's yeah. Tension Wendy trying to sort of grapple with the internal investigation of the, you know, after they've deleted these transcripts that betrayed Holden kind of going safety off Cro- in a couple of Crossing the line and <laughs> crossing se- some lines. Yeah, in several interviews. Holden has been hospitalized due to a panic attack after his last encounter with Kemper. Right. And Shepard is sort of trying to do damage control. You've got Greg, who they think is, they, they don't quite know yet he's betrayed them, but is obviously got a lot of misgivings about what they're doing. Yeah, we learned a lot about Greg in the course of uh, episodes one through five. Yeah. Just about um, kind of what a, his particular and very conservative, really, worldview for that group. Yeah, and you say worldview, and I, I kind of want to get immediately into the tone of the sure, show. Sure, let's do it. Because I feel like last season was, or the, the first season was really atmospheric. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was told through the perspective of Holden, who is new to this science, it was kind of Tench's protege. And then kind of by the end of the season, eclipses Tench. But for the most part, a lot of it is just like incredibly moody. You've got a lot of shots of like right. all the ants eating the tuna fish right. at the end. You know, the cat in Wendy's basement. And these kind of like Lynchian notes of yeah. eeriness like that, that ring out underneath normal reality, that kind of stuff. And the ideas, the themes I felt like really didn't emerge until Holden and Tench investigated the school, the teacher, right? The administrator. Right. The idea of um, at what point does behavior cross the line into something that is truly disturbing and criminal and how do we stop it? Yeah. And if you're basically creating models of behavior, what at what point is behavior predictive? Right. At what point does somebody who's maybe exploring kinks essentially yeah. and also you know and those kinks could totally cross lines yeah, all sorts I, of societal well, as lines the, uh, yeah as as the principles did yeah. <laughs> last but does that necessarily indicate right. you've got a serial killer on your hands exactly. because they are inventing this science and they're inventing this vocabulary as it goes along it, and holden is the kind of like the, the the tip of the spear there because he too is finding himself awakened right. to all these different ways of thinking and all these different behaviors and obviously it compromises his relationship with his girlfriend at the time. Right. At, at what point does Holden, you know, I think about that moment when he's addressing the class and he's talking about abusing animals. You know, one of the one of the signs we see is abusing animals. You're mean to animals. Um, and I think that's a thing that, uh, you know, has crossed over into pop culture at large as like an indicator of something that many serial killers have done. Yeah. You know, what point are you, does does Holden start seeing these things in places where they don't belong? And that's really kind of, um, as his walls come down, that's really one of the themes of particularly the end of season one. Yeah, and then we get into season two and the perspective characters, the, the, the characters that we're spending more time on are Wendy and Tench, yeah. which is really fascinating, it's right? It's really, really cool. Because I think we could have, you could have said that Wendy and Tench were going to remain these sort of supporting roles that were really just there as counterbalances to Holden, that they were just going to be there to say like, Holden, slow down, you right. don't know what you're doing. And instead we get really into their personal lives in this, the second season. 
I am blown away by the patience of this show. Yeah. It is slow moving and that is by no means a bad thing, but the fact that we've, you know, at season two now all of a sudden we're going to open up this entire uh, new world of getting into Tench's uh, home life, getting into Wendy's. It's tragic home life. Yeah. Really tragic home life it, as it develops. Wendy's personal life and how she came to be here. And all the while, much like Holden at the end of season one, these walls that they've put up between their personal life and the work that they do are seeming more and more porous. Yeah. More things are crossing over. There's an incredible moment in episode four that we'll talk about where Wendy is, and Greg are uh, ha doing an interview with a criminal and it's like they're, they're talking – each of them is talking past each other and on multiple levels yeah. seemingly at once. That's the thing I'll say about it. So I find this season to be, quite frankly, drier. Yeah. You know, like I don't think that there's that many emotional moments. There's not that many cathartic moments so far, at least in the first five episodes. Sure. It is absolutely like complete like Wagyu beef lean. It is yes. just like there is not a single morsel of this right. show that is not absolutely important. I've rewatched parts of the first five episodes already just to get ready for talking with you today. And I cannot believe how every single scene, even the Wendy and Kay scenes where yeah. I think when you're first going through it, you're like, oh cool, they gave, like Wendy has yeah. a girlfriend now and like, and she's like going out, and, but she is essentially doing the same lap around right. America that Holden did where right. she's like, so what do you mean you live in this place yeah. and you you live a life of abundance, but it has nothing to do with like capitalist accumulation of material items? She's turning that same kind of investigative lens on this budding relationship and also on herself as she's trying to navigate like what, how do you, what is this place? Like she is, there's, she has a great line when she first approaches her. Like, is there a place for us? us. Yeah. And I found that really affecting. I, Everything that happens that seems uh, trivial is then used somewhere else to to layer in the character work that is really really stunning. Yeah, and so far. once you know that, yeah, the interactions with Berkowitz, mm -hmm. who's Pierce, is that the guy in the first Atlanta yes. guy they talked to, and especially Henley, and then obviously Manson in episode yeah. five resonate because you can find all these connections not only between each killer and Kemper. Mm -hmm. uh, Kemper, who's now like the public, he, he's like the public editor. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> right, right, he's like, like the ombudsman. <laughs> he's like, let me just tell you about how like you should think about interacting with all these people. But also <laughs> the way in which those interviews wind up having a lot to say about the various investigators. Right. The, the various characters. So in that sense, it is maybe the most efficient show I've ever seen in that yeah. way. Everything is a mirror. Every layer of this show is a mirror in which the characters are, are projecting some part of themselves and, and reflecting some part of themselves. We could talk a little bit about some of the specific things that happen in episodes mm -hmm. in a second, but I did want to talk a little bit about the filmmaking and the writing in that way because, you know, I think that we associate Fincher with a certain virtuosity that he certainly had much more, he was much more flashy earlier in his career. For with sure. Like Zodiac, or not, but more like with Fight Club and Seven, and he was highly stylized, and there was a lot of like really flashy stuff that, you know, of course, like in Fight Club, the opening credit sequence of like going through all the wires to yeah. get to, you know, I actually think that over time, he's become a much more restrained, yeah. even if he's much more, his level, his attention to detail and his exacting nature of his framing, of his pacing, of his cutting, of his movement is so high. 
Carl Franklin, when he came on the watch last week, who directed some of the, some did some of Mindhunter season two, is like he really was conscientious about keeping the filmmaking language of this consistent with what would have been f- filmmaking language of early of the early eighties, mm. the late seventies and early eighties. So a lot of master shots, wide frames. You can see the entire room. Not a lot of unnecessary close ups. If it's a close-up, it's because it matters. If the camera moves, it's because it matters. It's not just because like, oh, let's just get a little bit of juice going by moving the camera around. And that can be, you have to teach yourself to watch that. So like, you'll be watching and you're just like, this is really great. On first glance, it doesn't necessarily, I don't feel like I'm watching the new David Fincher movie, which essentially the first three episodes are. Yeah. And then when Tench goes to visit Kevin, the kid, the witness, the living witness of the BTK killer oh, man, that is- in, in Kansas. And he's with a uh, Wichita cop and they get in, they're in a truck in a parking garage and this kid who was shot in the face three times by the BTK killer gets in the backseat of the truck and he's got you know nerve damage from his, his wounds. And you're like, oh God, this is going to be gruesome yeah. or they're going to, it's whatever. And the guy, the cop is like, don't look at him in the yeah, face. Just okay. Keep, keep looking forward. So Tench is looking forward. We're looking at Tench. The camera's looking at Tench, and we never see the kid's face. And it's it, it was amazing to kind of like process the tension that I felt watching that because I Unbelievable. kept believing because it just focuses you like a laser because you're thinking, when am I going to see it? Yeah. Am I going to yeah. see his face? And also, why the fuck do I want to see? Yeah, it? I, it's like why do I? Yeah. And that's the thing is yeah. I think it's really confrontational. It's because a lot of this show, I think in the back of my mind, I'm still waiting for like a chase. I'm still waiting right. for a like, we got him. And so much of the show is about how these guys are like, we're not, we're basically scientists. Yeah. We're not Sherlock Holmes. Like we're not here. Like Tench is like trying to get that across the hold in Atlanta. He's like, yeah. you are not doing the necessary legwork to call yourself an investigator. That that I think is is really the central idea by which it is necessary to understand Mindhunter. They're not going to catch these people, yeah. right? They're either caught, or and BTK is not going to get caught for decades. They're not going to catch them. So what is this? It's a meditation on a really particular form of violence. And I'm glad you said exacting before. Because, you know, Fincher is incredibly exacting in the way he makes films. And... He seems to really have a particular fascination with people who are exacting mm-hmm. on the social network, Zodiac, sure. the game. And like, and these, these very violent men are extremely exacting in the way they do things. I, th- I was thinking of like ritual in episode one when we see Dennis Rader um, going through the particular ritual that he needs to feel gratified, which is like truly a shocking thing. You just see it from the outside, the door shaking, and then when you finally see what's going on inside, it's like you don't really see much, but what you see is like there's a lot. There's ropes. There's different uh, articles of clothing. Yeah, there's there's masks. masks. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we cut to Tench, the Tench family at church, and it's just these ideas of, on the one hand, these people who are creating their rituals for themselves and then rituals that are impressed down by society. And these ideas of these kind of behaviors that are either passed down through culture or that are created by these like renegade criminals who are creating their own culture. That idea of ritual and exactingness is something that comes out in like every frame. Yeah, and also doing. you just said that like these renegade criminals, it, they are starting to become conscientious of their role in culture. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think in the first season, I, I'll never forget that slideshow 
that Tench and Ford give the local police department. I think it's in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly. And they're kind of going through it, and they bring up Manson, and the guy's all grown. Yeah, yeah. They're but they're basically trying to wrap their minds around the idea that we're starting to see basically random acts of violence committed by strangers. Right. Everything is passion or, you know, everything before that was an act, like, it's right. an it's act a of member vengeance. Of the, it's a member of the family. There's you a know, cause like, and effect right. thing here that we can understand, a, mem- right, a member of the family. And now we're just starting to see these acts of violence emerge and it it is essentially a virus. Yeah. And these guys, like Kemper tells them, these guys all know who the other are. And that's yeah. why Kemper's so titillated when when they're waiting for Manson in five and they talk to Kemper again. Yeah. And he's like, have you found someone who the news hasn't yeah. started to discuss? He, he picks up on that and immediately. And it's like, it's, it's, it's absolutely like the air goes out of the room when you're watching it because you're just like, they understand that they are all as deplorable as the behavior yeah. is, as horrifying as the behavior is. BSU, the only people who understand BSU are the killers, and the only people who understand the killers are BSU that, and that, other killers. That's how that's how Tension Holden unlock Berkowitz, who to that point was uh, you know sticking with his the dog maybe do it yeah. kind of story, and then as soon as they're like, man, there's a guy in Kansas who's like obsessed with you. Yeah, like he's doing all the stuff that you did. You see that light come into his eyes. I mean, these are people who have such a singular focus and complete lack of morality that the only people that can really understand them are these other people who are doing the yes. same thing. Yes. Um, and that, time and again, is how BSU reels these people in. Yes. And the only thing that seems to actually interest them is discussing that right. part of it. I mean, like, they'll eventually start talking about themselves. And as you alluded to, the the conversation between Wendy, Greg, and Henley is is maybe one of the highlights of the show oh, so amazing. far. But this idea that um, you know Kemper is you know that everybody has to wait for Charlie and that like he loves to talk and all this stuff and there's a note of jealousy that was yeah, really absolutely. interesting, absolutely, and just also like the idea that like they're so consumed with either with shaping their own narrative. Like Henley is consumed with the idea of like, I don't care what's in the affidavit. I don't care what you think. I know what I did. I never killed them. Yeah. Even though he procured kids. He he was doing all this horrific stuff. And of course, the connection between like what Henley's talking about and what's happening in Tench's family. Yeah. And the idea that Brian, and again, you talk about this idea is like, is this a virus? Is this poison? Is this out in the air? Is this in the culture? Is this somehow spread in modern America that people get these ideas? And and then, like, I mean, it's almost sickly, like, darkly. It's not funny, but it's, like, the idea that Brian would think he could bring that kid back to life by putting him in a crucifix yeah. is, like, well, these myths are just way older than I, mass media consumption, you know? Again, this idea of ritual and, and behavior that's impressed down. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I think the Manson interview really nails some important ideas, which is, you know, he's a bullshit artist to the extreme, but also the thing that it feels like he unlocked in the people that followed him was this idea of all this stuff is just baggage that comes down from your parents and from these other generations. Real freedom is just casting, and you can cast that stuff off at any time and just believe what you want to believe, think what you want to think. And that is a really compelling and interesting idea. I find myself watching this show you know, like full disclosure, I have gone on numerous 
uh, serial killer deep dives just in my personal life, like at any, <laughs> you know, like throughout my uh, relationship with the internet. It's just a subject that fascinates me. I find myself interrogating that, trying because to figure of the out, show. Big, yeah, because of this show, trying to figure out like why is this stuff so interesting to yes. me? You know, yeah. I mean, that, so that's exactly what I was saying with yeah. the Kevin scene, with that scene in Kansas when Tench is talking to Kevin. I'm yeah. like, what? What do I want out of this? Scene? Right. As a viewer. What what am I looking? What gratification, catharsis? What do I? Why do I want to see this person? Is it like? Is it important to me that I can tell what the, who the actor is? Right. Is it important to me that like the violence inflicted on this character is somehow physically shown? Right. So that like I am aware of the consequences, even mm-hmm. though the way it is actually shot is you don't ever get to see the kid's face. You get one shot of his sort of profile, right. but the glare off the car window obscures his face and what you're forced to do is listen and and this is a kind of an ingenious move by one of the most visually distinctive filmmakers of the last 30 or 40 years is Fincher has made a show where it is in absolutely essential to listen to every word mm-hmm. and the writing I would say is not exactly like crackling with like dramatic energy sure it, most of the FBI agents are very it's they're, super they're all dry. super toned down. Yeah. Tench can get a couple of drinks into him and kind of get a little swashbuckling, but for the most part, Anna Torv, Jonathan Groff, Holt McElhinney, like they yeah. play their characters exactly who they probably would have been, which is like you don't get into the FBI because you're Al Pacino in Heat. Right. There's one time that Tench kind of raises his voice. Yes. In this, and that's it. And then he goes to a cocktail party and tells right. war stories, and people are super into it. And he yeah. becomes like kind of the the face of the BSU, right, the, the Mad Men. Uh, Mindhunter does Mad Men in that moment, <laughs> but they're they're restrained, yes. and you're forced to listen to what is essentially sounds like transcripts. Right. A lot of the dialogue sounds like it's it's transcription, and then when something happens, when something notable happens, whether it's the interview with Kevin mm-hmm. and that the way that the music kind of rises with the sound of the L train or whatever is going by that garage. And like, you realize like you are being, you're not witnessing the events, you are witnessing the trauma. Like you are witnessing this kid have to relive the trauma of the events. Like that is incredibly high level filmmaking. That is like, that that is insanely precise filmmaking. Yeah, the most like, Fincher is incredible with, Drawing your eye to the perspective of the character that he wants you to see from. Yes, and I think and that the Kevin scene is is great at that because you see the cops crystal clear and and you never see Kevin. Yeah, really clearly. Yeah, um, you, your attention is drawn as his would be to like all these places, and you just see him kind of furtively trying to hide himself. And you know Fincher does that a lot with like when he has two characters in the same frame and the kind of rack book is coming back and forth. That stuff is. Amazing, and you really notice it when all of a sudden he'll give you a POV shot or oh god, yeah. or, or a dolly shot that's yeah. just rolling ominously towards a building. Yeah, know? Dominic actually is probably a little bit more loosey goosey with that yeah. in his two episodes in four and five that I've seen so far. The other thing that comes up a little bit here is so in that Kevin scene that I was thinking about, you get an idea also about the as BSU grows and as we kind of see it in the context of the American judicial system mm-hmm. is set with for lack of a better term the access to justice yeah um tench 
you know, Tench's son is essentially mixed up in a, in a murder, you right. know, and Nancy is like, you're an FBI agent. Right. Like, like, make pull this a, go away. Pull a string. Yeah. Like, you pull a lever. Do and something. Yet, Tench understands, like, he's like, this is like what I— what they're doing to us is what I do to other people. Right. He say, he's, he's, he says that in the moment when the child psychologist yeah. comes. is like, I, I do that all the time at work. I walk crime scene. Don't and, get personal with her because she's not your friend. And then obviously like scores points with the therapist because he's like, yeah, I was just interviewing Manson. And the guy's like, oh my God, I'd love to hear about that. Up. Yeah. And Nancy's just like, so the very thing, like, as you can tell, brewing under the surface is that Nancy is horrified by what Tench does for a living. Yes. And also disappointed that he's constantly on the road and mm -hmm. like has to go to Atlanta, has to go to California, mm -hmm. drop of a dime. And yet that very, that, that, what he does with his life very well may save their bacon when it comes to this investigation. Because if people start being like, well, these guys seem like really super interesting. Yeah. So the access to justice and that especially comes in with the Atlanta stuff. So the Atlanta stuff is like when this, I think this show just goes completely widescreen and panoramic and and jumps to another level. Yeah, it's like how many big ideas can we yeah. have in a show? Yeah. Like a uh, ritual, amorality, uh, uh, the porousness of culture, and then all of a sudden it's access to justice and uh, um, who gentrification, gentrification, yeah. who can be hunted and who is ignored and who is paid attention to. Um, all these like really interlocking big ideas that seem to be happening at once in almost every scene. Yeah, and you talk about how no lines are wasted. Like, for instance, the first time you watch the moment when Holden arrives in Atlanta, he gets picked up by Jim mm -hmm. at the under construction Atlanta airport, which is yeah. on its way to becoming the biggest airport in the world, I think, right? right. And he's like, bigger, bigger means better, right? And he's like kind of saying it sarcastically, yeah. but just a little bit. You're like, okay, this is, seems like a weird, like, two guys who haven't seen each other in a while, right. and it's a little awkward throwing, like, throwing dialogue around. But that's exactly what's happening at BSU. BSU has gone from three right. people in a basement. Tons of resources. On the cutting of edge of behavioral science and forensics. Yeah. And now they are a political tool being used by this guy, Ted Gunn, right. who's their new sort of overlord at the FBI, who clearly sees this as a, if I ride this wave, right. Growth this industry. wave crests at this is being the head of the FBI. This is a growth industry. There's a reason that people perk up when they hear the name Charles Manson. Yeah. You know, and if you can attach yourself to being part of the movement that explains Charles Manson, that's great for your career. Yes. And his, what are his obsessions? It's, I don't want to get hit with fallout from something that you guys do. <laughs> he's like, he's basically like, I don't, give a shit how you yep. conduct yourselves. I mean, keep the blinders, like keep, right. keep it within the guardrails. But, I don't care if you guys make mistakes yeah, or it. overreach. I just want to know about it as soon as possible so right. that I can control the narrative. And that's what's sort of happening with Atlanta is he sends his boy down there yeah. on some Fox Mulder shit to be like, <laughs> just kind of like, just kind of fly free, Holden. Like, yeah, just poke around, see what you can, attach yourself to this case. And Holden thinks he's a genius being like, it's a black predator. Right. I found out. I figured it out. Like the Atlanta child killer has to be a black guy because- a white guy couldn't operate in these neighborhoods without undetected. being noticed. Yes. And they actually essentially do exercises to prove that when like Greg is walking around. Yeah. And they're like, hey, uh, what do you, what do you show us? Your, like, and the kids are immediately dubious. Yeah. They're like, what do Stranger you want? Stranger danger. But the black, the yeah. black law enforcement yeah. that they have down there is able to pick up like four or five kids. Get them right in the car. Just by being like, I have two bucks for a job. Yeah. So they start to basically bring in the idea that every case that they're investigating is inherently political. Yes. And that's a great line when Gunn, when is Gunn is sort of reprimanding Tench 
And he's and Tench is like, it seems like it's all politics. He's like, name a big city that isn't yeah. all politics. You know, it's like, it's gonna be that way. But the idea that Atlanta is changing, they have a black mayor, they have the same problems that a lot of American cities have in 1980, but they are pushing through at breakneck pace right. to completely remake that city and make it a major airline hub and make it this new sort of gleaming metropolis of the South. And they're leaving behind a lot of people in the right. process. Who gets, who gets left behind is the undercurrent of that theme. And it's obviously like uh, something that is applicable to uh, many issues right now. Yeah. And it's also like a testament to Holden's uh, vanity that he's just like sick. I'm going to have to have a one night stand. Yeah, that, that was, <laughs> that was, you know, like I, it's interesting when this show uh, gives you action and speeds up. There's that great uh, sequence where the, person at the desk approaches Holden and is like, yeah, um, hey, be ready. Do you want to like go, go to have, the, have yeah. the best meal in Atlanta? And then, yeah, as you noted, he thinks he's about to have a date and there's that quick cuts of like him putting aftershave on, yeah. new suit, combing his hair. And then it's not that. It's not. It's, not <laughs> it's definitely not. It's definitely not. He goes and meets the mothers of these, of these murdered and or disappeared children and you start to get into the sort of core mission of what BSU is. Right. Because Holden is bending science to, to answer a, a need, a yeah. need for justice and a need to help people. And Wendy and Tench are like, that's not how this works. You right. can't just take what we do and make it, you're not Batman. If there, I mean, if there's, uh, that that plot line, that sequence is amazing because if, like, if there's a criticism of the show, it's that it like, uh, exploits violence against groups for entertainment. And here's a scene that really directly takes on the idea of are some people's lives worth more than others yes. when it comes to the application of justice. And it's clear because, the, the, the answer is yes. Yeah, and also like the entire show, you co we're constantly running into, okay, so in Wichita, there was this small task force of cops right. who basically had no advanced understanding yeah. of forensics who have taught themselves like analysis of copy machine toner. Yeah. Then you have, you know, uh, over, overwrought or like, you know, overwhelmed local detectives in suburban Virginia investigating yeah. the case that Brian is involved with and essentially like allowing Brian's father to dictate yeah. certain things in the case. And then you have this situation in Atlanta where there are guys there, like the guy they meet who's doing the stakeout of the KKK bar. <laughs> yeah. Who's trying to explain like, yeah, man, like, look, we're actually sincerely investigating this case, right. but we can't go headlong into there is a serial killer right. in Atlanta when in fact, th this is actually about on average for the amount of children right. who die per year in murders in Atlanta. And at the same time, doesn't close the door to it. He's not, not like, he's yeah. not like, it's not, not happening, but- before you go out there and say these are connected, understand the landscape that you have just entered. Yeah, and also the machinery moves slowly. Yeah. These are big barges that turn slowly. And like, that's just not how this works. And, and you know, there he is doing a, a stake out of the good old boys, the, yeah. uh, the KKK members. And then when- uh, Oh, Camille, yeah, she <laughs> says. She says half half the force used to be KKK. Yeah. Um, so all these uh, interlocking perspectives, um, open up the idea of like, where are the gaps in those perspectives? And those are the places that these criminals are, are plying with a plum. So I, I feel like we just spent about 40 minutes talking about how, you know, we, we, this really made us think a lot about our, our own- um, It really did. Our own psychology <laughs> and the cultural violence that, it, yeah. that is America. 
But I do think we should probably talk about the scenes with the serial killers because oh, they're man. like the emotional highlight of the uh, of the episodes. They're, sort of, they're definitely the dramatic highlight. They stage them as if they are boxing matches. Yep. We are. They each guy gets his walk up walk in moment. You yeah. know, like Manson. What does Tench say? <sighs> like he's like a it, fucking king, like a king yeah. led in by a guard much bigger than him who unlocks his manacles and then. Uh, made them wait. Made them wait yeah. like a long amount of time yeah. for it. And and then he comes in and sits very performatively on the top of this chair mm-hmm. to get that, you know. Because he's short. Get the high ground, get the height of, which is, you know, like I do in every yeah. meeting. Get the height. <laughs> get the height. Also, I make sure I never have any. I'm kind of worried about all the cords I have here. <laughs> I could kill you with that microphone cord, man. If I wanted to. His sort of. Jumping right into the mind of Tench and just like completely like that dunking was on that guy like a me- like unbelievable and the sense that almost like he can like f- like smell the pheromones coming off of Tench of like how much he resents the existence of someone like Manson. So we said we and, should- the, and the way that that is almost like a condemnation of his generation's yes way of living. The way that is set up is incredible. So uh, Tench's and Nancy's son Brian gets involved with some older kids. Right. Who uh, he's yeah. obviously very Was that like, That's like the first or second scene of the season is yes. like Tench leaving church and be like, Brian, why don't you go play with these older kids? And you're like, whatever. I don't yeah, even yeah. think twice about this. Don't even think about it. These kids end up killing a much younger a top, child. A, yeah. And Brian in an empty house that Nancy is selling. And then Brian kind of very naively uh suggest putting him in a, on a cross because maybe that'll bring him back right. to life. So in Tench's mind is this idea of naivete and an innocent being led down a garden path by a much more experienced, hardened, mm-hmm. and malevolent figure. And here is Manson, the very embodiment of that, who, as everyone says, as Kemper derisively says, he never did it himself. Yes. Never did it himself. Yes. And here he is, the very embodiment of that kind of influence, picking and picking and picking yeah, at these that. These are your kids. These are your kids. That yeah. that wound that he senses in Tench, and then Tench just blows up, and it is a incredible magnetic scene where you just feel like there's there's conversations and thoughts and things happening on all these different levels. You know, Tench is talking to Manson, but he's also trying to. F- trying to work through his feelings about what happened with Brian and work through that that stress. Yeah, and meanwhile, we're talking about Manson's influence over people. Yep. Fucking Ford is sitting there with a smile on his face like he's just gotten asked out to go to prom. He bought a new microphone to impress the guy. He it's, brought his book to get autographed. Manson <laughs> knows he brought his book to get autographed <laughs> and, and with, fucking autographs Immediately it autographs it without saying anything. Is like, hey, I love your sunglasses. Can I have them? And Holden's just like, yeah, sure, man. (laughs) Yeah, you can have my sunglasses. I kind of understand that because when you think about what's happening in the, uh, when you think about the the cocktail party that that Tench goes to and Tench is like, yeah, you know, like Pierce was like this. He was such an idiot. And like, you know, here's what it was like with Kemper and here's what it was like with Spec. And Holden's just like, we're finding some really interesting connections between these kinds of <laughs> yeah. behaviors and these kinds of behaviors. Yeah. And you're just like, oh man, like you're you're not a primetime player yet. Right. You're really just better in these interrogation rooms. And you can see 
Holden is never, seemingly never more comfortable than yes. he is talking with Manson. And then the flip side of that, and this is the other one I wanted to ask you about, because in some ways, it's it's almost as impressive a, a piece of writing and a piece of acting as the Manson scene. For as flashy as Damon Harriman's performances as Manson, and it's an incredible performance and it's yeah. an incredible scene. The Tex scene that comes after, oh yeah, where uh, Ford talks to Tex, the guy who actually did these murders, solo, is breathtaking. And another moment where this is Dominic this time. This is Andrew Dominic directing, but subtly, yeah. if you go back and watch that interrogation. When Tex is describing the Manson murders, you can hear men and women shouting. In the, yeah, in the background, the hey. There's like, no reason, yes. there's no women in that yeah. prison shouting. It's happening in this sort of like, is this diegetic sound or right. am I hearing something that's like kind of an astral projection of what the story that yeah. this guy is telling? And you are completely, again, taken to, as he's going through and being like, and then Folger and then yeah. Sharon. And it's like going through all this these moments of the of the case and you're like, it, 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 you know, coming out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that, obviously this has been part of the conversation for a while. Mm -hmm. What a stunning piece of storytelling. Really? And it's just two people sitting at a, at a table. And all the while, Tench's a real need to feel that Brian was not involved in the incident, that he was involved in, or directly involved, that he was acting under the influence of others. That need to feel that and to believe that is just like bubbling under the surface he hangs on like everything that Texas saying yeah but he was there but Manson was there and when you know we, he went back and why did he why did he go in first and it is really incredible that um that thing of hearing those people in the background like hey what's you know yeah, like yeah. in these like little like Sharon being like take me with you yeah, so like, I let me have the baby yeah, like it's and he's like well we were thinking about it it's like god that was like just heartbreaking I mean, I think the thing that we've, we're, as we wrap this up, the thing I want to think about most going into the second half of the season is this idea of porousness that you're talking about. Yeah. Because that Tex Manson, in the dual interrogation, really made me think about like, well, we say a word is like, you're culpable. Right. And throughout these episodes with Henley, with, to some extent, Berkowitz, with his like, you know, hoax about like, this dog told me to do it. Yeah. And then Holden basically goads him into saying it isn't. With Manson with uh with Tex. It's like and with Brian. It's like, well, so if you're if you're just riding shotgun to this, what right. does that mean? Right. Is it your responsibility to stop it? Is it your responsibility to get help? Of course you of course it is. For most for 99.999% of people, it doesn't even get to that point. But when you get into these murky territories of cycles of abuse, of substance abuse, of basically falling under the influence of different people and also falling under the influence of whatever else is out there, right. this dark demon out in the sky or whatever it is inside of people's brains that put them in this place, we start to like lose the ability to dis accurately describe these things. And we start to lose the ability to accurately kind of say, well, this is where the line is. Right. That's From sexual deviance to disorder to predictive behavior of something much, much, much more significant. That's a great point because, you know, like the, the, the levers of justice, justice is really a real blunt instrument as, yeah. as depicted by this show. Um, and Tench, Holden, Wendy, or Greg are going way beyond that into these kind of trying to find these pinpoint edges of where one person's culpability stops and where does another person's culpability begin? At what point are you 
responsible? Are you insane? And at what point are you in control? And that kind of laser precision, you know, Fincher to this show seems to be saying is maybe not possible yeah. to discern through the tools that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that actually in some ways, the style of the show is a commentary on that right. because traditionally what you would expect from a, a hackier set of filmmakers, maybe with no disrespect. I mean, I guess it is disrespectful to say <laughs> hacky, but you would expect camera work and visual storytelling that is somewhat more representative of the interior lives of the characters. And, and this is like, no. All exterior. This is just, we are paging through these documents yep. with you. So it's such a fascinating show. It's such an interesting show to get into. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Um, so we just did one it. through five. I think we're going to hit the second half maybe on Thursdays. That yeah. sound good? Sounds good. And then, so you can stay tuned after a quick break to hear the audio from me and Jason's Succession After Show. That's number one, boys. We talked about the second episode, which aired last night. Obviously, you can watch that if you want to see me and Jason wearing uh, nicer clothes. <laughs> you can see us on YouTube and on The Ringer's Twitter account. It's pretty easy to find. It's just number one, boys, Succession After Show. Jason, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But here are some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet, too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver, or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of drunk driving, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Righteous Gemstones. What happens when the creators of Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals turn their attention to the world of televangelist preachers? Find out in The Righteous Gemstones, airing Sundays on HBO. The new comedy from Danny McBride centers on the Gemstones, a celebrity televangelist family behind a popular megachurch that also happens to be a major money-making enterprise. McBride stars as Jesse Gemstone, the eldest of three Gemstone children, who sees himself as a maverick in the ministry game. Joining Jesse are his sister Judy, played by Edie Patterson, and brother Kelvin, a pseudo-hipster who always finds a way to get under his brother's skin, played by Adam Devine. John Goodman stars as the family's patriarch Eli, who finds himself at a point of crisis as he mourns the loss of his wife. He also questions whether the gemstones are still serving a higher purpose as they aggressively expand their empire. The Righteous Gemstones is a hilarious and irreverent look at high-living holy rollers whose world of mansions, jets, greed, and corruption belies their virtuous, godly mission. The half-hour comedy airs Sundays at 10 p.m. only on HBO. Welcome to number one, boys, the Ringer's Succession After Show, a.k.a. Fear and Self-Loathing mm. in Tribeca. My name is Chris Ryan. This is Jason Concepcion. We're your number one, boys, and we're going to get into Succession Season 2, right. Episode 2, Walter, a.k.a. Yeah. The Kendall Roy game. That's right, baby. We start off each episode of Number One Boys with buy or sell, which means what are we investing in and what are we divesting in? We talk here about who we're into, what yes. we're into on this show. So first, for buy, Ooh. I'm going to go Kendall as a son, right? 
So if we take all of like what Kendall's actions are off the table in this episode, and you just talk about whether or not he is executing yes. against his assignment as a son. He's he crushing it. did a great job. He's tearing throats he did a, right now. He has said over and over and over again. What does he say at the end of the episode? Because my dad told me because to. Because my dad told me to. That's literally like, and you can see there is no soul inside of yeah. him anymore. It has left his body. It's like Ed Reed hit him in the back <laughs> with a helmet to, to right. spine hit. And from, you, you saw the soul actually just come out the back. like Yeah, but he is literally doing exactly what Logan wants him to do. And that's, doing it in a way that in the previous season, I don't know that he was necessarily capable of. Like I don't know if he showed that kind of... Not savviness, but like ability to be clandestine. That's a great point because in the past, he's kind of been uh, not honest with himself about the fact that he's doing things because his dad either directly told him to or because his dad sent him on this course to be the person he is. And now right. he's he's just plain spoken about it. My dad told me to do this. My dad told me to gut your company, so I did. He reminds me of, of Darth Vader in a way in this in this episode because he's like, you know, the, Darth Vader is the henchman. The emperor calls the shots. Darth is extremely powerful and scary, uh, but there's like a lot of roiling emotion inside. And Kendall, that scene when he's staring at himself in the bathroom mirror after doing a bump of coke off the back of his hand and he kind of, <laughs> and immediately his demeanor changes to kind of giddy or just at least bemused at his own misfortune and he balls up the napkin and just throws it himself. Yeah. That was an incredible moment. I think you can make the argument that like Kendall's character has sort of not not regressed, he definitely has regressed as a yeah. human, but that they've dialed him back to the beginning of where he was in season one. But when you think about the guilt that he's probably carrying yeah. around, uh whether or not he's reckoning with that or not, that's sort of like an integral part of like cleaning up is to, is to kind of come to grips with what you've done, and that's so it's not surprising at all that he's doing key bumps in bathroom stalls and kind of laughing at the own absence of his own soul. That's you know what's really incredible about season two is they've they're doing a prequel without doing a prequel, right? You know, we saw Logan fall apart right at the beginning of last season. We saw we met Kendall post rehab. And now it's like we've brought all these characters to probably the, the way they were before season one happened with Logan in full control, his kids jockeying for position, and Kendall absolutely a drug addict. Yeah, yeah. And also, not, to, not for nothing, if you notice, they've changed the structure of the show. It's no longer these preordained months apart reunions of the family. Maybe right, right. that will come into play in the second half of the season or in future episodes. But right now we are in a much more traditional, like Roman's over yep. here, Kendall's over here, Shiv's over here, and we're cross-cutting. Now, for as much as we may be buying Kendall as a son, yeah. you're I, selling, I'm Kendall. selling Kendall. I'm selling Kendall. I'm selling Kendall as a human being. As a human being. Yes, he was... Uh, He's been a good uh, father to his daughter. Uh, kind of. She got to meet Snow Joe, but also like he was like, yeah, turn that turn that roller coaster up to almost a dangerous level. <laughs> What's the? It goes. <laughs> how fast does this go? Up to a point. Let's take Let's it to take that it point. Take it to that. He, but you know, as a human being inside, he is a mess, staring out into the night, like the skyline, looking at the skyline of New York City, thinking about who knows what, uh, stealing stuff from bodegas. Uh, doing coke, drinking, just draining flutes of champagne, pills, yeah. pills uh, 
<laughs> dealing with the fact that he uh, very high key committed manslaughter. <laughs> And that his dad is essentially blackmailing him with that fact to yeah. get him to and do stuff. And then pushing him into positions where he basically has to pretend as if he's not yeah. being blackmailed, but do things that make no sense whatsoever otherwise. And at what point does Kendall absolutely break irrevocably inside? That or is this how guys like Logan are made? Right. It feels like something is coming. Either he turns into that like black-hearted killer like Logan, or he absolutely shatters into a million pieces. What else are we buying and selling this week? Uh, that's all our stuff on Kendall, but who yeah. else are you buying on, on I'm this buying, show? I'm buying Jerry. Oh, Jerry stock. It's Jerry, a bump. Not a big Jerry episode, but I think it's very notable that Roman has now reached out to her again when he needed help. Like, what do I do in Volter? I don't understand what Kendall's doing. Uh, let me call Jerry, who, by the way, has, like, is like, I have 90 seconds to talk to you. And... I think as Roman continues to spiral, which I, sh which he surely will as Ken, at least for now, appears ascendant, I think we'll see him reach out to Jerry Moore as a touchstone, as a weird, a weird kind of mentor. Maternal a, figure. A maternal figure. And I really look forward to that relationship because he's like, can you, like, the way he was like, well, can you just be here? Can you just be in the room? That weird <laughs> neediness. And the fact that Roman chose Jerry as that point person, I think, is very interesting because Jerry is just as much as a shark as anyone, and that's an opportunity for her. And I and I look forward to her potentially exploiting that. Opportunity. Yeah, the pairing of Roman and Kendall is essentially just about two, like, well, one person telling another person that they're a piece of shit. <laughs> but I do think it's pretty interesting how Roman is so honest about what he is. Yeah. Like he is like I don't read, I don't, <laughs> I don't. work hard, I don't try. I am essentially just like here to be important without any anything ventured. Yeah. And like watching him reckon with that and then Tabitha being like, oh, by the way, you did a good job it's here. Like, like you should like, and he's like, yeah. I don't know how to process yeah. that. I don't know how to process the fact that I had an idea. Yeah. Sounds like you kind of <laughs> did your job. Yeah. And he's just like bent over like. <laughs> um, I, would, uh, I would say that one of the things I'm buying this week on su Succession mm -hmm. is just one thing to keep an eye on is this idea of efficiency, which yeah. Tom stresses to Peach, who runs ATN, which uh, obviously Kendall applies to his vision of Walter, is all these ideas that you can strip mine, all these like Give me the links skulls. in the production chain, get me skulls, like how do you tighten the belt? And whether or not, like this is something that that like I think Waystar Royco obviously just applies to any of their mergers and acquisitions. They obviously have done away with any speed limits on yeah. their roller coasters. Um, so yeah, efficiency is definitely something I think is going to be a keyword that comes up multiple times this year. Are you buying, selling anything else? I'm buying uh, Greg the Egg. Yeah. Uh, listen. Good season for him so far. Just great like, season for my guy. Really Craig. great middle of relief. Shows that he has. <laughs> Some principles, very flexible sure. at this point. Listen, principles. Everybody, everybody's got to make a living. We'll get to that uh, line in a bit. Still Ken's Coke runner, and listen, job security. Uh, and if, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're looking for a job that will absolutely uh, just be there in this economy, <laughs> it's delivering cocaine for Kendall, to Roy. Kendall Roy's of the world, yeah. And then he got like a $5 million apartment because yeah. Kendall's like, yeah, I was, had my guy try to flip these, but like the market kind of not great right now, so it's yours. There's a catch to that, though, because I'm selling Kendall as a landlord. <laughs> oh, no, I thought that good. was a very nice human moment where Kendall was just like, I, this is just like 
also a very sad statement on the state of New York City real estate where they're just like, here's all these like multi-million dollar condos empty, so yeah, my developer is gonna flat, flip empty. them. And so in the meantime, you who was like looking at like half of a loft in, in Staten Island. Right, a closet. Yeah, which you couldn't actually sit up in. Yeah. You could have this huge multi-million dollar apartment downtown in New York City. So Kendall then comes through and is like, by the way, this Austin needs to be my uh, den of- Wait a second, wait, hold on. I'm like, I'm looking for pussy like a techno, techno Gatsby. Gatsby. What was that? <laughs> what the fuck What are the that? odds that Kendall's actually read Gatsby? Uh, I think he probably read the first like, three he's pages. Got, like, the, he, that, like, that's like a, somebody told him that at a right. restaurant. He saw the Gatsby movie and was incredibly moved. And I think he probably, <laughs> I think he tried to, in, I think he was like, tried to invest in that movie when it came out. Um, my last sell is Tom as Edward R. Morrow. <laughs> um, Tom's, Tom's in a great spot. I, they're really putting McFadden in like this really interesting place where like, he's always got like these watery eyes. Yeah. And he's just like so naked in his ambition. He's like, well, yeah, that's absolutely great shit, but that's not the plan. Yeah. I thought his meeting with Peach was incredible. Unbelievable. Uh, and also, you know, it's like, it's not that he wants to push uh, ATN to the left. Yeah. It's that he just wants them to not only sell shit pills to 68-year-olds. Jay, did you have anything else you were selling um, this week? I'm going to sell Schiff. Uh, listen, finally got a measure of clarity about what the timeline for the for the turnover would be in approximately three years. Uh, she really got Logan's attention with the PR strategy to fire back at Stewie and Sandy, but with Kendall ascending at the end and the way the caginess of Logan, there's no way he is not setting her up for some kind of betrayal. There's, there's no way. All these kids have a propensity for self-destruction. Yes. Which is really interesting because they manifest themselves in different ways. Like, Roman is is incredibly external and obvious. Like he yeah. blows satellites up. Yeah. <laughs> Kendall is traditional in the sense that it's like got a lot to do with substances, yeah. substance dependency. Shiv doesn't have to end her relationship with Gilda. Yeah, she doesn't have to burn it. And she could be like, now. "Hey, it's time for me to step back. Right. Like, like this is where you need to go, or whatever." And instead, she kind of she takes such a front to him upbraiding her about that working man joke yeah. and the you need Purell. That she's just like, no, screw this. I'm, gonna, I'm destroying this on the way out. I'm gonna burn the bridge, I'm gonna nuke the ashes, and then I'm gonna bulldoze the entire valley that the bridge right. stood over. Right. Also amazing that like she stays in the car. Like, yeah. As, as they're doing it, she's just like, I'm not getting out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not like, you get out. Yeah, you get out. <laughs> We're gonna talk about number one boy. It's essentially who won the episode. I think it's only, it's, it's a field of one. It's Kendall. Yeah, it's Kendall. Absolutely crushed it. At the end of the episode, he is brought into Logan's good graces. And here's the thing. Logan's like, make yourself at home. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So what did you think of the fact that, like, he's like, okay, make yourself at home, which is like, obviously proximity to the seat of power right. is very important. Roman seems very alarmed that there's a meeting happening without yeah. him. This, this show does office politics so well. Yeah, it really does. But when he's like, make yourself comfortable, and he like, essentially sits down like the mountain and right. he's just like, I'm gonna sit here at this table and, and watch not. you look out the window. Yeah. And that was the other thing that was a very Vaderish moment. There's that moment in Empire where we first see Vader just staring at, you know, staring at that out of at space through yeah. the back of the windows and they, they return to that shot and return of the Jedi. But that it was like the Emperor in his chair and his henchmen just looking out over the Empire. Um, incredible and weird moment because yeah. it's like, I'm not actually giving you the office. I just want you to be in here with me. 
So that's Kendall. He's the winner of the week. He is the number one boy. What a techno Gatsby. All right, biggest burn of the week, uh, and this gives me and Jason, two former New Yorkers, an opportunity to talk about one of our favorite topics, the New York MTA. Uh, it's when it's going great. Tom goes up to Greg and says, Greg is getting the ferry to work. Check out Brian Ferry. What a burn. Dude, why stop at the ferry? Just come in from Cleveland on a Greyhound. That's very funny yeah. because when you were in New York and you were Greg's age and you're dealing with like Greg's like economic circumstances, yeah. You're definitely like, could I live in suburban Philadelphia? Oh, yeah. And still commute to New York every day. And the other thing that that brings up is when I was looking at places, I would look at literally like a ditch behind an apartment <laughs> building before in any of the four other boroughs before I was like, I guess I'll look at Staten Island, I guess. Oh, oh my God. I would rather live in Maine <laughs> yeah, I'd and like, commute. I'll live under a sink, I guess. I There's a water source. A steamer every day. <laughs> That just like brought me in and dropped me off at the harbor. Who takes a boat to work? <laughs> there was another great burn oh. this week. You want to handle Tabitha's? Uh, Tabitha, who you may remember, we were introduced to her uh, at the underground party, episode eight, Prague, yeah. Prague of season one, where. <laughs> Uh, how to put this uh, in a way that we can? It's a closed loop system. Tom, uh, she orally serviced Tom, and then uh, spit the the. Uh, He's pretty explicit about it. I think we could follow suit. Okay, he uh, <laughs> spit the cum back into his mouth, and he swallowed it, and. So they're at, you know, uh, <laughs> Shiv and Tom are having dinner with Roman and Tabitha, and Tom has a bit of a cold. Everybody kind of walks away. Tabitha and uh, Tom are there for a moment, and Tabitha looks at him and says, you should try swallowing something. And Tom is just like, and the, he goes, like, honey. The adultery between Tom and Shiv, and then also, like, Nate and his wife, yes. it's so... I, I don't know if we're done with that because oh, it seems sure. to be like a real like no 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 Tom and Shiv's sex life seems to be something that they need to discuss constantly so I think they're doing that definitely to keep that in our uh, in our minds uh, the line of the week which is slightly different than burn of the week yeah, it yeah. doesn't have to be so scabbers uh, line of the week um, this is great Tom says to Greg <laughs> as they are walking into ATN and Greg is expressing some moral some reservations slight reservations and he says he has principles tom's like name me one principle you have and uh, greg's like i don't know i'm against <laughs> racism bullshit i'm against racism everybody's against racism what else it's great tom's amazing i love uh, i've got tom for my line of the week as well so tom is talking about an empty big empty wall in uh the apartment that he and shiv have and he says you know what i don't care this empty wall I don't care if it's incredibly gauche, but can we just not have a big, beautiful portrait of us up there? To Saddam? To Asadi? <laughs> I also really enjoyed uh, Kendall's COO keywords. Super casual feet on the table, a lot of crackle in the air, ethos and culture, body pit, Potemkin village, <laughs> That's good. and full fiber optic clear channel shit, the CT scan on your metrics. I just want to like chop up the language in this, uh, in this show with the edge of my credit card and, and snort it directly into my brain. Let's talk finance. Yeah, um, we're experts. No, I mean that's. I mean, essentially, like when we were sort of picked out of like the field here to, yeah. to, to host this show, it was right. about our 
underlying the foundational That's like right. knowledge that we had about the market. Guiding hand, Adam Smith. Yeah, I mean all that stuff. The thing is, is it's it's about China, but it's not. Right. You know, we're LinkedIn, it. but we don't have to be. It's adversarial, but it's also cooperative. So you come to us to explain some of the more high-key economic terms on the show. And this week, the one that we keep hearing a lot about is proxy fight. Right. So it's like how to best explain proxy fight. Right. Obviously, conflict is part of it. You know, fight meaning some sort of battle, from the squaring Latin. off from the Latin uh, meeting uh, to uh, battle over uh, silverware. No, yeah. And uh, proxy, you know, meaning who is a, like approximately, approximately, kind of like I'm. I'm trying to eyeball this fight and who. But it's a. It's an estimate. Right. I'm estimating the battle. What could you know? What could this be? I'm looking at it, and then what do I think? <laughs> Actually, a proxy fight is when a group of shareholders try to induce another group of shareholders to join them in a takeover. So it's essentially that it's like you have one group of shareholders who want to have a takeover or maybe an outside force that want to have a takeover. And they try to get a bunch of board members, a bunch of shareholders to go their way in the takeover. Well, that's the Keynesian view. But, uh, you know, uh, the the Lacanian view is actually also very similar. You want to talk mirror phase now, dog? Mm. Let them eat cake. This is our crazy rich moment of the week. And this was, I think, first of all, we could just take everything Connor did. The sliders, <laughs> the long-term rental of a hotel room. Why don't you, have you considered a hotel? Suggesting to Greg that he rents a hotel room <laughs> as a solution to his housing problem. And then he's uh, just sort of like, unending run for the White House. Yeah. And his assumption that he is just going to get it, which is now... Not that funny. Yeah, um, actually, like, maybe feasible. Um, but the one throwaway line that I really liked was, Shiv walks into the very awkward double date with Roman and Tabitha with Tom, and uh, it has champagne, and Roman literally just swipes the champagne out of her hand and it says, would you like some Japanese whiskey? <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, shutting down an entire amusement park for the benefit of yeah, the that's family. Pretty good. That's pretty Snow good. Snow Joe. Okay, so predictions for next week. Um, I think that Shiv's Shiv's gonna have a reckoning now because Shiv's gonna sort of start to put the pressure on Logan. This has sort of been, if you look at this as like a three episode arc, so far Shiv and Kendall have all both been put in like sort of Logan's Mm -hmm. spotlight. I don't know that Roman will ever get seriously considered for this. So I think that this is essentially gonna be a tug of war between Shiv and Kendall. I thought the balcony moment was really interesting in the second episode. But what do you think is going to happen the next week? I'm going to just go straight out of the box. There's these moments whenever whenever Greg and Willa are in the same place, being Thank in the there's like they're in the same age range, and she's always she's got those great eye rolls, and it's really Greg is the only one who picks up on them. Yeah, well, he's got principles. I'm going long range. I see a You're little shipping. I'm shipping. I'm shipping Greg and Willa at some point Grilla. in season two. Greg, the motherfucking egg. I'm not saying anything will happen, but Willa, listen. Like, I think it would be. Uh, it's an understatement to say Willa is probably not emotionally satisfied in this relationship with Connor. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> We'll be back next week on Number One Boys: The Ringer Succession After Show after the third episode of Succession season two. We can't wait to see it.
Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The Righteous Gemstones. Don't miss The Righteous Gemstones Sunday nights on HBO from the team behind Eastbound and Down. And Vice Principals comes the story of a popular megachurch slash money-making enterprise starring Danny McBride as a bad boy preacher, Jesse Gemstone, John Goodman as the family patriarch, Eli, and Adam Devine and Edie Patterson as the younger Gemstone siblings. The Righteous Gemstones airs Sundays at 10 p.m. only on HBO. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, and you could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. So next time you plan on drinking, make sure you plan ahead. Designate a sober driver or use a ride service to get home safely. Drive sober or get pulled over.